The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Welcome to Spirit Matters, where we explore matters of the spirit with leading experts from across the spiritual spectrum, all designed to enrich and enlarge your wisdom, deepen your joy and peace, and awaken your inner connection to the divine. Here's your host, Philip Goldberg. Greetings, everyone. Thank you uh, for tuning into Spirit Matters, the reboot. The reboot of uh, the podcast I co-hosted with Dennis Ramundi for ten, seven years. That is uh, now in the past, but our archive lives on. And if you if you go to spiritmatterstalk.com and the YouTube channel of the same name, you'll find about 300 interviews with uh, extraordinary spiritual teachers and experts of different kinds and Please go and avail yourself of the archive. We will keep it maintained and keep it free. Uh, And in this new iteration of Spirit Matters on this new platform, we'll uh, be continuing. We are continuing the tradition of having conversations with a diverse range of very wise people who can help you along your spiritual path. And I'm very pleased that uh, today's wise person is Sally Kempton. Sally's a widely respected teacher of meditation and spiritual wisdom, a former journalist who, whose articles I remember reading in uh, Esquire and the Village Voice. Uh, she has been for more than four decades now practicing teaching and writing on meditation and spiritual philosophy. 20 of those years were spent as a Swami in a traditional uh, monastic order. And she is the author of two best-selling books, Awakening Shakti, The Transformative Power of the Goddesses of Yoga, and Meditation for the Love of It, which we'll talk about. She teaches at Esalen and Kripalu and all kinds of other places and has her own online courses and seminars that you can learn about at her website, sallykempton.com. Sally, thanks for being with us. You're suddenly muted. Wait, hold on a second. There you go. Okay. So um, I just was saying it's a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and see your face. Very good. Thank you. Um, I think people are off, always interested in uh, origin stories, of how people got interested in especially uh, non-mainstream areas of spirituality. And 
in your case, um, I think it's a particularly interesting one that people can relate to. So at one point, you were uh, a well-known already as a young woman, a young uh, a, a journalist of some repute and uh, stature. And then you had a spiritual transformation that led you uh, onto a path that you've been on all these years. And uh, first as a, a devotee and then as a devotee and a teacher. So could you, what was it like? What was the transition to, what was the turning point? What was the transformation that triggered that transition in your life? Uh, well, the my first, um, my first taste of what has become the goal of my practice uh, is was an acid trip in 1970, and in that during that journey, which was actually it was the first time I'd ever taken acid, I was just inundated with love, which I knew was a what I'd always wanted and missed in my life. Um, you know, coming from a cynical humanistic left-wing family where love was not a word that was actualized that much. And uh, it it was so powerful and so all-encompassing. And it was so clear that it this was the truth of life. Mm-hmm. Um, that I, and I, um, it took about a year before I could really do something about it. But, uh, and what happened then was that I got involved in a Western spiritual group called Arika. Uh-huh. And then I had, which you may know. Yeah. I remember. And, and then uh, about a year and a half after that, I, I had another awakening at the feet of a Tibetan teacher who, um, who asked me, um, he, who said to me, look at the back of your head. And I said, what do you mean the back of my head? And he said, find out who's looking. And I just catapulted into a state of non-dual consciousness, which was radical and started the process of Kundalini awakening and literally, you know, remaking my inner being. It was kind of scary. Mm. Um, And in the middle of that process, I became aware of Swami Muktananda, who had just come to this country and, uh, you know, was a well-known Kundalini master. So not Kundalini yoga, as in Yogi Bhajan's yoga, but I guess what I would call the real Kundalini, the one that (laughs) makes you the base of your spine. And I went to see him, actually looking for some advice. I thought my Kundalini had gone up the wrong channel, as in that terrifying book by Gopi Krishna, which was all Mm. we had to read about Kundalini in those days. He burst out laughing and he said, no, 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 no. Kundalini, there's no such thing as up the wrong channel. Kundalini is the intelligent creative force of the universe, and she knows exactly what to do. So uh, so that was my first encounter with him. And my, you know, my experience of him was of that love that I was searching for, seeking for, addicted to. I came to be addicted to it. And um, that's kind of been the unfoldment ever since. You know, how deep can that love become how vast how wide thank you um and that was in 
the early 70s for those for people trying to place these things when uh there were many of us having that kind of breakthrough but it was uh uh, the availability and the accessibility wasn't quite what it is today. And the, <laughs> the acceptance of stepping onto such a path was uh, such that uh, we had to face a lot of uh, resistance and, and uh, teasing, I should say. Yes. yes, and including from within. You know, yeah. Because, yeah. because our upbringings were hyper rational hyper modern this is pre this is pre postmodernism but we were hyper modern so um it, it was interesting that you know a few months before this whole journey started i did an interview with carlos castaneda for a piece i was writing wow. for esquire i had to track him down he he was he he was very secretive about his his whereabouts and i finally found him uh in full view at the University of California at Irvine, where he taught anthropology. And we had a, you know, quite a deep conversation. And I told him that I was about to do this thing with a Western spiritual group. And he said, you know, you cannot do spirituality with fellow Americans. You have to enter another culture. You have to have your mind blown hmm. another culture. And of course, he was talking about his own experience with Don Juan. But I have to say, you know, even though there's a lot to say about our mistaking the culture for the path, there was something about just plunging into an Indian ashram culture completely unprepared for what it was going to be like. Mm. That's incredibly powerful for me. And that, you know, I I um I think has been for many, many people. Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, yeah, that's a very interesting take on it. It's sort of like the the, uh, the the rewards of culture shock in a certain way. It can it can yeah. The, the and and I guess for for those of us who were uh, in the counterculture in those days, um, the very foreignness and and non westernness of it was that much more appealing. Totally, and also I know. For those of us in the counterculture, you know, my my guru was he was a traditional Indian yogi, which meant that he, you know, men and women sat separately, didn't talk to each other, at least not in public, uh, and um, and the the whole, you know, the whole quality of that ashram was I would use the word puritanical. It was very, very straight laced in certain ways, which was a strange contrast to the you know, the extreme, um, the quality of meditation, because being a master of awake Kundalini, there were all kinds of, you know, wild things that went on in the meditation hall. Um, But in our, in our personal lives, in our relationships, we were very much trying to be, um, you know, in part of Indian culture. And for me, um, because I was, you know, wildly countercultural and and quite, uh, how shall I say, um, very liberal in my views about everything. It was I, I actually felt like I had to remake myself mm-hmm. in the mode of a young Indian virgin. <laughs> this was after I'd been married. I'd been, you know, around New York, and uh, 
it was quite a radical experience yeah. that so so the you know the cultural human aspects of it uh were very definitely a big part of it and um you know and of course everything normalizes itself and but one but, of the, and one of the interesting things about that that I've always looking back and when I wrote American Veda I had to sort of pay attention to was part of that uh, sort of conservative nature of traditional uh, Indian ashram culture was a certain deference, uh, if not uh, uh, reverence uh, for for the guru. And we were the generation that was like anti-authority. Yeah, yeah, and we had to, that was not only an unlearning, but some of us were perfectly happy to do that with a guru we looked up to, whereas we'd never do it with a parent or never. or a teacher or right. the government. Yeah, yeah, I know. And I mean, I used to think in those days it was during the Carter administration, and and. <laughs> My guru was, he was a monarchist, basically. You know, I mean, yeah. his, his politics were monarchical. And I remember he once said, this was after the Iranian hostage thing. He said, Jimmy Carter took birth to destroy America, meaning, you know, meaning that as far as he was concerned, um, the important thing in government is that everything be under control, <laughs> you know, that... And yeah, um, yeah, so it was so antithetical to. You know, I, I hear you. Well, that's for the historians now. I want to move on, but since you yeah. uh, brought up uh, Swami Muktananda, um, one of the things he was known for, I mean, all the gurus who came had their own angle on the tradition and their own expertise. In addition to his illuminating the uh, nature of kundalini as as you mentioned earlier he uh, brought out the kashmir shaivism yeah he was and very... which recently seems to be enjoying a kind of uh, resurgence or stepping into the spotlight more and more people are discovering the treasures mm-hmm. in that tradition uh and you were exposed to it you know 40 some odd years ago and it's an important part of of your teaching, I know. Can you uh, tell our listeners what what is the uh, essence? What is what does Kashmir Shaivism of all the different traditions in the uh, Indian repertoire of uh, the Vedanta and yoga and everything else? What is distinctive about it? Okay, really good question. Um, well, first of all, from my point of view. Kashmir Shaivism is it's radically non-dual. In other words, unlike Vedanta, which with, with which it has a lot in common. Yeah. Vedanta also is a radically non-dual tradition. Uh Tantric Buddhism also. But in in Kashmir Shaivism, there's a deep understanding that Shakti, the divine feminine power aspect of the divine, has become this world and become us. And therefore, everything in the universe is filled with the sacred quality of Shakti. So everything in the universe is to be accepted and even revered. So it's a it's a tremendously powerful antidote 
you know, to our tendency to judge and reject and, you know, and, and be hierarchical about, uh, you know, who we spend time with and who we approve of. So it's, it's the, the Shakti aspect and the quality of Shakti is bliss, you know, is love, is ananda in the, use the Sanskrit word. So when you get steeped in this tradition, it's a, it's literally a bliss saturated tradition. Mm. And, and, you know, whereas in some of the other non-dual traditions, um, bliss is seen as, you know, kind of a lower manifestation of your spiritual progress in Shaivism. There are obviously many different levels of bliss, but bliss is the nature of the absolute. So, you know, awareness bliss is the nature of the absolute. So along with radical clarity and, and identification with your own awareness, there's also a an identification with ecstasy. And I have to say, uh, that's been my experience over the years as I've become more and more deeply engaged in not only teaching, but also practicing in in a Shaiva. And now I'm, I'm doing a lot of Shakta practices, which are the, the practices which, uh, it's another it's another aspect of of uh, what's called Trika Shaivism, you know, is that it, it's there's related traditions that are, which make Shakti the feminine, the center of the universe, and which are, you know, which, in which the masculine principle, the Shiva principle is considered to be empty consciousness, empty cognizance, if you will. And the Shakti principle is everything else including the instruments of your sadhana and your path. So to, in other words, to get to the full awareness of your own awareness, you actually have to go through shakti. You have to work with your own mind. You have to work with your body. Uh, so it's a very, I would say, it's a very fitting tradition for Western and you know modern Eastern people because it allows us to, recognize the beauty and importance of the the physical and subtle and mental universes um while you know while recognizing that the ultimate is non-dual is you know formless etc cetera, etc cetera. so and seem seeming it would seem to be particularly um or pertinent to those of us living lives in the world it, it's not a a tradition that draws you necessarily to a monastic uh, sort of withdrawal. No, it's not a monastic. It's a householder tradition. And um, yeah. And, you know, and it's, and in India, uh, especially in South India, as you probably know, that there are, there are, there, the, a lot of the monks of the Shankaracharya tradition, which is kind of the basic tradition of, of swamis or monks in India, a lot of them, especially in the South, are lovers of Shakti, mm -hmm. lovers of divine feminine. So there's a deep understanding of, you know, of the nature of reality uh, that includes this uh, this recognition that, you know, that Maya, which in which in Vedanta is considered the, the kind of evil, deluding power that makes you know that that makes us ignorant. In Shaivism and in Shaktism, Maya is the goddess. So, and 
it means that your attitude towards the world, even when you're deluded, you know, even when you're, even when your ignorance is overwhelming you, you understand that it's the divine uh, play of the goddess. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's a very forgiving tradition in that sense. Which brings us uh, to one of your books, um, Awakening Shakti, which you've, in a sense, already explained the title. <laughs> but um, the transformative power of the goddesses. Now, when people look at, you know, sort of the Hindu section of a comparative religion course or a text, they, they're exposed to all of these uh images of deities and symbols and uh, of, you know, the full pantheon of, of Hindu deities. And they, it's often just sort of dismissed as quaint or as uh, idol worship and, and that sort of thing. Um, you obviously have a more sophisticated take on that. So how do you understand the well let's focus on the the feminine deities the the, the goddesses so to speak that you rep, uh discuss in the book what do they mean what do they represent and and how why are they pertinent to uh the spiritual lives of uh people like us well i you know i first of all i understand deity on several different levels you know so so on on one level, deities are cosmic forces that we all experience, you know, whether in weather, in, you know, in our psychological condition as forms in which we experience grace or, you know, or help from higher powers that, so in other words, deity is, is this formless, non-physical energy that expresses itself in many different ways in the universe. Secondly, uh, deity is actually an aspect of human consciousness. And this is where I got really interested in the individual goddesses because they do, you know, every one of these, these goddesses has a particular form of, well, first of all, a, a personality and a particular area of, in which grace or insight is given. And they do correspond in, you know, in many ways to human personalities. And I, one of the things I've come to, I come, came to see, and it's part of the, part of what I wrote about in that book, is that every one of us is connected to certain divine forces, you know, that certain divine qualities in, in reality. And if we personify those qualities in the form of, you know, one of those iconic forms, it doesn't mean that we're, we're falling in love with the form. It doesn't mean that we're worshiping stone or metal. It means that that we are we are working with the form as a kind of iconic or personification of particular cosmic energies. And the form uh, at one level becomes a way of of you know it becomes a cognitive focusing device basically. You know you can you can bring the energy of particular deity into your field by focusing on the form or by focusing on a mantra or by focusing on one of the geometric 
representations that are called yantras. And uh, as sadhana devices, they're incredibly powerful. And uh, so so deity is really, um, you know, Jesus said, says, you are as gods. And I think he was talking about this particular quality in human life, you know, that that along with our humanness and <clears throat> our psychological qualities and our skills and capacities, and along with our ultimate, uh, the ultimate truth of our being as pure awareness and, and love, we also have connections, you know, as we have connections to ancestral streams, we have connections to deity streams. And uh, once you start practicing with deities, you you come to realize that there are, you know, they're protectors in the cosmos that you can tune into. And, uh, you know, and, and this is, of course, as you know, every tradition has this, you know, from the, the deep shamanic traditions to Christianity and Judaism. The thing about the Hindu deity pantheon that's so great is that there are so many deities <laughs> that generally speaking, you can find a personal connection to mm-hmm. one of them. You know, so, so, uh, and, and many of them, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of a, let's say, all-purpose uh, religious devotee. I mean, I can get quite. I love Jesus and the Virgin Mary, and you know, various other figures of traditional religions. And uh, one of the things that I've noticed is that the, you know, the Western vision of of the Christ light or of the Virgin Mary, they're completely present in the Hindu tradition. Mm. Uh, you know, what what uh, Westerners name as Jesus, I would name as Vishnu or Krishna. They're very, very similar um, qualities of light, qualities of love. And in other words, I believe they're universal forces that have particular faces in different cultures and um and there's a lot to say about the the contribution that different religious cultures make to the you know to the general understanding of the divine but i would i would say the indian the hindu culture is incredibly sophisticated in this way you know that in the in this understanding that you can there's so many avenues so many gateways into higher higher states of consciousness and the deity practice, uh, I have practiced it, and I think you may have as well, and many people do both in the Hindu tantric traditions and in Buddhist tantric traditions, is that when you begin to meditate with a particular deity form and internalize that form, that it actually transforms your own physicality, your mental state is a kind of divinizing process a kind of, well, in Christianity, they would say transfiguration, where the light of that being begins to come into you, guide you from inside. And eventually, at a certain point, I wouldn't say take over your identity, but become become a part of your identity that you can tune to, turn into, tune into. Uh, and um, it's a tremendous link to the power of grace in the universe. 
There's also the notion or the concept uh, in in the tradition of ishta devata, yeah, um, which you kind of hinted at. Uh, explain that and and how it ties into um, particularly your book in which um, you you have six or seven of the principal goddess figures in Hindu trade, and you devote a chapter to each of them with practices that mm-hmm. are, are oriented toward them. But and but there is also this Ishta Devata uh, concept. Can you explain? Or for- yeah. Yeah. Well, the Ishta Devata means chosen deity. Uh, and it it's that it's the aspect of divine consciousness whose personal form you you connect to most deeply. And often in India, it go, you know, there's a there's a family deity. Right. Um, you know, generations of people have gone to the same Durga temple or the same Shiva temple, and they have a you know an intimate relationship with that deity. But for Westerners, you know, people who've who are not, you know who did not grow up in a Hindu tradition, that that the discovering that there is a form of the divine that you feel particularly connected to. And who who can function as a guide and protector and really internal compass as you begin to internalize that being. Not everybody has a sense of their Ishta Devata. Um, but when you do, it's it's a profound kind of almost familial connection. Mm. And the idea is that eventually you so internalize the deity that in a certain sense you become that. Which is a strange and heretical idea in the West, but but a very very powerful one, as you know. Do you, when you talk about this with people, um, do they do you do people ever say to you, um, "Isn't this focus on particular uh, forms antithetical to non-dualism?" Yes, they do ask me that a lot. <laughs> How do you? I get asked similar things. What do you yeah. say? Well, I say it's a matter of levels. Hmm. You know that that there's a there's a level, the, the absolute level. Um, there's, you know, there's a formless, uh, pure awareness that we enter into in which there's no thought, no form. Beyond that, there's the experience that everything in the physical and mental worlds is irradiated by this non-dual blissful awareness but in between and shaivism is very very places a lot of stress on the process by which that formless absolute kind of steps itself down until it becomes a human being and and the idea is that that there are beings living in the subtle world in the subtle worlds who exist on many different levels and that at the highest levels of consciousness before there is absolute absorption into the non-dual, there are these, these vast powerful beings whom we call deities. You know, so, and I would say Jesus is one of those, Krishna is one of those there, you know, they're 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 not they're not they're not non-dual in the sense that they're specific and personal, but they carry within them the full awareness of the non-dual. So when you connect to them, they open up into the non-dual. So, you know, I, and for human beings, as you know, being 
you know, having come from being one of them, being one of them, <laughs> and a similar tradition. There's something about having a form, having a relationship, having a second person, a relationship with a second person form of God that's incredibly important. You know, because the the non-dual itself, first of all, you have to be pretty darn awake to get it. <laughs> you know, otherwise it's just an intellectual idea, which is what I think it is for many people who call themselves non-dualists. You know, they they know it intellectually, they're not really experiencing it. And they're kind of using non-dual non-duality as a cudgel to beat people over the head who have a more devotional relationship with <laughs> right. or, like mantras or you right. know. And, uh, you're so dualistic. You're so dualistic. <laughs> well, yes, we're living in duality. We're in the physical world. So, so how do we get through this physical reality in a way that takes us to higher and higher states of awareness, deeper and deeper maturity? Well, we do it. One way we do it is by having companions, you know, friends, human friends, teachers, but also by having, you know, divine companions. Mm -hmm who turn out to be uh, not just imaginary friends, but, you know, who actually are alive in what, uh, in what's sometimes, in what Jung, I believe, called the imaginal world, mm. you know, the world of archetypes. And I think it's easier for, for modern people to understand deity as archetypes mm. than it is for them to understand them as real beings. Yeah. But they're both, you know, they're both. And, and, you know, it's always worth pointing out that the, the greatest of the non-dual teachers all understood that. And uh, Shankara wrote themes to the Divine Mother. And, uh, well, your own guru was non-dual teacher who understood all this. And, yeah. yeah. Um, Namada Maharshi has a Sri Chakra. Uh, he what? He has a Sri Chakra in his Samadhi Shakra. So he was buried with it representation yeah. of the divine mother and yeah. Uh, yeah they they all understood the that um, the the non-dual unfolds the, the dual and all um well it's one of the things forgive me for interrupting it's one of the things i think is so sophisticated about hinduism and also tantric buddhism you know is that there is this complete comfort with moving back and forth between the universe of forms and the formless. It's not there. They're understood to be completely complementary and helpful to each other. You know, so, right. so, um, you know, so when, when you go in meditation, you go into one of those non-dual states, which, which um, with God's grace, we all do or will at some point, you know, and everything disappears then you come you come, come back. Back. yeah and you know and you yeah. need you need wisdom you need help you need friends right <laughs> you need you, protectors you found the ox and now you have to come back to the exactly. uh, marketplace um <laughs> and you may not be fully self-realized when you come back to the marketplace you might need you know a little hand holding from and uh, regardless you want to drive on the right side of the road and exactly. uh, <laughs> Speaking of which, uh, just a, one more thing about goddesses and all. One of the charming things about the, the tradition is the, are the stories that are associated with each of the goddesses, and they're wonderful tales. And of course, it's easy to dismiss as 
you know, mere mythology and the products of uh, uh, gifted storytellers' imaginations. But there are also great teaching tools. And do you use the stories? How do you use the tale? Because you come from a, a journalistic background. You know how to tell a story. You know the value of story. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the beautiful thing about about really powerful mythological stories is that it's immediately obvious when you go into them that they are pointing to a level of reality that is that is much deeper than can be even described in words, you know, because they they work in you on a subtle level. And, uh, you know, it's like symbols, like mantras, um, they bypass the the psychological aspect of, of, of human beings and, and actually open us to the, you know, to the deeper, let's say archetypal realities. So um, there are several ways that I like to work with stories. One is to, you know, to simply allow people to meditate on the story and find in it what resonates with them. Another is to, to actually work with the story like a dream you know, in which you see yourself in every part of it. You know, so for instance, in the famous story of Durga killing the buffalo demon, uh, there, you know, you can see in the demon army that comes to assault the goddess, you can see the different passions and misunderstandings and forms of ignorance that we all characteristically have and which come against the force of truth and, you know, which she destroys or dissolves we we prefer dissolves to destroy <laughs> you know but but it's it it makes a big impact to realize that you know you can personify your negative qualities you can offer them into the hands of the power that can that can dissolve everything except the truth and this myth is going to give you an actual experience of how that works and at least in my experience of mythology and I think you probably have that same that same understanding is that when we bring a myth into our consciousness it's it acts like a depth charge which can mm. transform the way we look at ourselves and the world mm. in a very uh natural way interesting uh, um i noticed on your website that you uh you have a online uh course coming up called Your Mind is Your World, The Radical Non-Dual Practices of the Yoga Vashishtha. Yes. Um, by the time people hear this, the course will already have begun or finished, but uh, you told me they can find it online even after the fact uh, yeah, on your there, website. There's a section on my website uh, which where almost all the courses I've done online are available. And they're much cheaper. <laughs> right. They don't have you live, but that, right. so I, I don't feel bad uh, no. discussing it. But I'm curious because <clears throat> I have a copy of the Yoga Vashish, the nice big thick book. And uh, for years, I've I been meaning to read more of it. And I've just barely dented it. It's a lesser known text. It's not widely known like the Bhagavad Gita or the Upanishads, 
but it's incredible. And so I want to I want to 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 share with the audience uh, what the Yoga Vashishta is, what you find compelling about it, and how what you're uh, why you're using it in this course. Well, talking about stories, the Yoga Vashishta is it's one of those texts. It's it's a Vedanta text. And it, it starts out with Lord Rama, the avatar, who as a young man um, came to the teacher Vashista, who was one of the great sages, and he's having a meltdown. He's, you know, he's realized that that the life which he thought was so full of promise is actually empty, that, you know, that you suffer and die and he doesn't see any point. And he's, he's the heir to the throne of the kingdom of Ayodhya. So it's not okay that he's ready to pack it in. So Vashista, the, the Yoga Vashista is Vashista's teachings to Rama to make him understand the nature of life. And the basic point it makes is everything is consciousness. Nothing is as it seems. And the state of your mind is determines your experience of suffering or joy. And not only that, the state of your mind when you free it of all the um, upadis, as the Sanskrit term has, all the all the obstructions. The state of your mind is the state of God. So he actually ha- there's a line in there which is, I think, my favorite line in all Indian literature: "Consciousness plus thoughts is the mind; consciousness minus thoughts is God." Mm-hmm. And that's the thesis of the Yoga Vashista, which it describes in amazing, really way out there stories. You know, there's there's one story that I'm I'll just tell, I'm gonna just give you the cliff notes of it. Mm. You know, it's about a, a queen whose husband has died and she's mourning him. And um in the middle of of her sitting with his body, the goddess Saraswati, whom he's been she's been worshiping, comes and he sa- comes into the room and says, you know, your husband just died. And he's dead in this world, but let me take you to another world where he's alive. And then another world where he just lost a battle for his kingdom. And then another world, you know, in which you've just given birth to a son. And, you know, and in other words, there's this whole series of stories about the multiple realities that we enter into when we free ourselves from identifying with our physical body. And it's it's like I consider it the root text for uh, for contemporary manifestation practice, you know, for the for new thought, which says, right, you can manifest anything through the power of your mind, uh, which, you know, is an idea that we kind of laugh at as, you know, kind of new age magical thinking. But the Yoga Vashista is the text that explains how that works. Because consciousness is infinitely creative and, you know, has the power to manifest anything. And if you are fully tuned into it, which, of course, is the state of a of a very great. Well, real that's the prerequisite. That's the prerequisite. <laughs> you have to be a villain, which is not what the, you know, the Western New Thought traditions say. But you can transform reality with your mind. And and for us having that recognition of the the fact that the mind is actually a field of consciousness within which thoughts and perceptions arise and subside it's 
probably the most freeing recognition you mm. can have. Mm. It is the it is one of the ultimate non-dual recognitions. So that's the yoga that just drums this idea into you. And I've for years I've kept it by my bed. I read it before I go to sleep at night, which is a great way to read it, because you know you read a couple of pages and then and your mind expands. And uh and it it just changes, as we were saying about mythology, it, it transforms your consciousness mm. from inside. Go ahead. You, well, you were... I, which I think is really the purpose of reading spiritual books. It's not for information. It's for that right. transformative process. Yeah. Um, have you ever been to Vashishta's cave? No, I've never been in northern India. I hear it's extraordinary. Oh, it is, yeah, I've been there. I, I'll be there again in, in February. I'm taking a tour group. And when we're in Rishikesh, we take a little side trip up wow. the river and sit in his cave, which the last time I was there was pretty crowded, actually. It's gotten it's gotten a little bit more uh popular. Yeah. Um, but I would I would invite all listeners, if you're ever in that part of India, go sit in Vashishta's cave. Um speaking of of uh Rama and his uh, having to be uh trained so he could uh take over and and be a proper uh, ruler um i'm curious how you have reacted to events in the in the political and social world uh you were politically active back before you uh entered the ashram um how do you respond to the craziness of the world and the current events? And how do you advise, what do you advise your students who are grappling with what the proper spiritual approach or attitude should be? Or uh, is it what's most, how are you dealing with the events of the world the last few years? Well, I like many people, I was nailed to the news for quite a while, starting with starting in 2016, um, and then really escalating during the Trump years. The, you know, obviously the the news was so crazy and and compelling that we couldn't look away. Uh, and at that time, you know, I I kind of went through a process of really looking at what I what I am capable of doing. You know, because when we engage in in political activism, it's really important to understand what what our role is, what what our talents and our energy can contribute. And I came to a couple of conclusions and this is what this is what I suggest to my students is that it's really important to contribute financially to, you know, to whatever, uh, I'm going to use the word progressive, but I mean it in a generic, in a generic way, to, you know, to what it is that's going to help unfold higher energies in this planet, you know, which could be, it could be an organization like Partners in Health, or it could be, um, 
you know, an, an animal rights. I mean, it could be very simple, mundane things. And I think that we all need to do that. We need to support organizations and people who are doing good work. Uh, and some of us are are built for political action. So what I always say to my students is, if you're drawn to, you know, to this kind of work, um, just make sure that you're you're really checking back with your heart and your inner self so that you're coming from a place, not a place of anger, not a place of, you know, of we are good and these people are bad, but a place of really, um, really being able to, to understand on an intuitive level what needs to be done and what you have the capacity to do. And what's, to use a Sanskrit word, dharmic for you. Um, yeah. yeah. What your, you know, what what your your actual personal dharma is in this situation. Yeah. Good. Um, but not to ignore it. Or, but not yeah, to ignore not it. To... And I, I do think that's really important, Phil. Thank yeah. you for saying that. I, you know, we're, we live in the world, you know, that one of the beautiful things about the Indian system is the understanding of the four goals of life. Mm. Artha, moksha, kama, and moksha, uh, the the right action, dharma, more complicated word than that, but um, kama, which is enjoyment, pleasure, artha, which is wealth, success, and politics, and moksha, which is liberation. And and the, the implication is that we're meant to have all these things in our life. You know, so we're yeah. meant to have... We're meant to do well in the world. We're meant to, we're meant to make a difference politically if we have that capacity, and we're meant yeah. to enjoy, and you know, and we're meant to do it in a, in a dharmic way, in a way that's in alignment with the laws of love, and we're meant to liberate ourselves from the round, and, and have fun, and have a really good time while we're doing. <laughs> no, those uh, uh, four aims of life uh, for you know, it's it's a great framework for householder living that is often um, um, neglected or ignored. Um, Sally, one of your other books is Meditation for the Love of It. Um, why the title? Well, because the, the motive, my motivation for writing that book, I, I'd been, um, is it, Meditation for the Love of It is actually, this is the book I happen to have it. Go ahead. Go out and buy it. Um, it. It's, I I had, I mean, I, I love meditation myself. And uh, at the time I started to write it, or shortly before I wrote it, I realized that I, I had let my meditation become routine. So I would, I would get up every day. I would sit. I think this is true of a lot of practitioners. It's just part of what we do. It's like brushing our teeth. But the dynamism in it has, you know, it's like a routine marriage, you know, here, you know, you love this person, but, you know, you're not really having that great a time. You don't really have that much to talk about. Um, you've, you've kind of forgotten the romance of it. So I wrote this book to kind of bring back the romance of mm -hmm. meditation. And it, it's, it's got some very basic stuff in it and it's got, a big section on troubleshooting and on working with the mind, but the the basic thought, you know, how every book has one, let's call it a big idea, 
<laughs> or one main idea. The main idea in this book is that meditation is play. Meditation can be a recreational activity. It's not something you do because it's good for you. And it, and it's not even something you do for the sake of liberation, although that that uh, that goal will become stronger and stronger over the years as you meditate. It's something you do because it's delicious. And so the book intends to give you ways to make your practice delicious. And, you know, there's a bazillion books on meditation. That's what this is. That's Good. the thing this one offers. I like that bringing, because it, it, you're right. I mean, and, and I've used them, uh, the metaphor you did in a positive way that make it a, a, a habit, make it a regular part of your life, like brushing your teeth. But if it's only that, if it's like the obligatory thing you do or the ritual you do without you know, paying attention to, I, I could see why uh, you were moved to, to do that. That's, that's... Well, it, I think, you know, with meditation, because first of all, there's nobody out there saying you did, you know, <laughs> you you passed that test, you did this right, whoops, you screwed up there. It's an entirely internal process. So all of our tendencies, you know, for instance, the famous tendency to sit in meditation in your meditation posture and just ruminate, which is, I think, what many of us do, uh, or to to go into a sleepy state and, you know, and to come out of meditation and and realize that you actually do feel better than when you went in, but your meditation itself was dull or, you know, there were hardly any moments of meditation. So it takes some work, you know, to have, to have clarity in meditation. You actually have to make some effort. And yet if you make too much effort, <laughs> then it becomes, it, it's no fun. It's, you know, it's too hard. You'll and get we, a headache. You know, you give you a headache and we have so, we work so hard in the rest of our lives. So to find a way to do, to make the appropriate amount of effort to stay present, you know, to, to keep coming back to the heart or whatever your goal is, it requires a lot of motivation. So, um, and many of the great beings like your guru, your teacher, my teacher, would sort of motivate us by telling us about all the fabulous experiences we could be having, you know, the lights, the <laughs> other worlds, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, but not everybody has those experiences and yet everybody can feel this deep contentment and interest in what's going on in the inner world. If you, you know, if you have the right, if you have the right, um, uh, focal point, if you have the right understanding, if you have the right effort and it's, it's, you know, as, as you know, it's one of those things that you never lose you you know you never it can't be taken away from you very good and, you know, and there are very few things in life that are here to support you right up to the end i just the other day was hearing uh, ringo Starr was being asked about his time in india and meditating and he said they can take me house they can take me car but they can't take me mantra <laughs> oh, that's, so that's so sweet it's exactly true um sally okay. speaking of meditation uh we we have a few minutes left would you like to uh lead our listeners into a few minutes of meditation as a closeout sure and uh 
what's coming to me now is is something very simple um a a simple heart-based concentration practice so um if you would like to find a posture letting the sit bones and the buttocks ground and the spinal column elongate upwards and it's as you know it's really important in meditation to keep your spine straight so that the energy can move freely up and down the body and we're going to we're going to practice in the heart so become aware of the movement of the breath And feel that you are actually breathing into the heart. Breath is flowing down into the heart with the inhalation. And then with the exhalation, it flows upward through the throat, up through the center of the head, up through the crown. And then with the next inhalation, feel as though the breath is coming in through the crown flowing down through the center of the head, the throat, and into the heart. And feel that the inhalation expands the heart. The exhalation allows your awareness to flow upward, to flow into the realms above the crown, so that you're breathing in the rarefied energy of those higher fields, you're breathing it in, holding it in the heart, allowing it to expand the heart and then to flow upwards. Connecting the higher realms to the human realm, which is the realm of the heart. Now gradually allow your attention to settle into the heart, feeling that the inhalation flows in like a caress into the center of the heart. And with the exhalation, the space of the heart expands through your whole chest area, almost as though it's blossoming. And you let your attention nestle into the region of the heart, internalized, touching into your most human self, and also feeling the presence of your higher self, the heart being the place where the human and the divine most naturally meet.
And if you can come out of this meditation and keep your attention in the heart, it will bring a real sweetness to the rest of your day. Thank you, Sally. My pleasure. Um, it's been great to have you with us. It's always a joy to talk to you, and I really appreciate your taking the time. And uh, listeners, uh, go to sallykempton.com and uh, take a full advantage of the wealth of knowledge and uh, transformative practices on her website. <clears throat> Thank you all for listening. Please subscribe. Tell your friends. Go to my website, philipgoldberg.com. Email me your suggestions. Subscribe to my mailing list and uh, stay in touch. Sally, thanks again. Well, it was total joy. So be well. Awesome. Happy holidays. It's, yes. it's free Christmas at this time, though. You may be listening to it in June, but. There's other holidays. Yes, <laughs> another galaxy. What is it you really want in life? No matter what you've been through, you can still achieve it. I'm Sandra Ann Taylor, and in my Energy Activation Podcast, we'll explore the science of manifestation, and I'll give you specific techniques to shift your energy in order to make your dreams a reality. I also do live energy readings, and you can be a part of the show by emailing your questions to me at sandrataylor.net. Join me on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>